Saturday, I got thinking about, uh, I don't know why, but you remember Kramer, Michael Richards, when he yeah. had his thing where he, he had his you thing. You can't forget that. <laughs> well, you can't if you were alive then. Yeah, you it know? was shocking. Yeah, it was. It was what, like the I, first. It was what he was going for, and it was not what he was going for <laughs> all at the same time. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so, uh, I, for some reason, it crossed my mind, and I just thought, well, that was pretty crazy. And then I started thinking about, boy, Jerry Seinfeld sure was a nice friend to go on Letterman like two days after that. Yeah. yeah I remember that. Um, and so at the time, so this is the first big cancel that happened publicly. I mean, you like viral videos. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like that's just at the, you know, you had other celebrities say things that were untoward, but it was, in you know, print. but they didn't, but they didn't get canceled. But that was the first time it was like news outlets and the yeah, internet. Yeah. It, was, it was easy to share a video of Michael Richards mm-hmm. saying terrible things. YouTube. Yeah, you're right. And, and if you're going to like, <laughs> you know, if you need any screenplay ideas and you're thinking of like worst thing to happen to somebody, <laughs> beloved star, that's like very benign and like everybody the, loves him. Who doesn't everybody, love Kramer? Everybody loves Kramer. <laughs> yeah. Um, so for him to like be on video and it's not even like it slips one time. It got misconstrued. It's pretty obvious. He yeah. did. So, but so for the audience, we're tracking now. We'll just pick okay, up somewhere good, in here. Yeah. But for the audience, if you don't know what happened, you can look up Michael Kramer, stand up meltdown. He uh, basically, Michael Richards. Michael Richards. Plays Kramer. Yeah. Plays Kramer. And he basically uh, goes on an insane racist rant, yelling at some black folks in yeah. the audience and it's, it's like a borderline where it starts out where it's like he's being heckled, but he just goes like zero to like 60, like, mm-hmm. like, it, and there's no way it gets ugly so fast that you're like, that's, that's a crazy racist guy. I don't know what, how else you look at that. I hesitate to say th- that I like can sympathize with him because what I mean by that is not like you should just definitely go throwing in words at people and commit to it. But what I mean is, have you ever been on a, like I've done this on stage where I think the crowd is with me and I make a comment and just it didn't yeah, read well, yeah. the room. Right. Yeah. You have two choices. And I think the correct choice almost every time, unless you're at the laugh factory <laughs> and you call people the N word, but like I few, I made a misstep one time. I made a misstep recently where I made fun of Nickelback mm-hmm. in front of a casino crowd that loves Nickelback. Yes. Nickelback. And I just thought, ah, okay, my bad. I forgot you guys don't have good taste in music, <laughs> but I had no choice but to lean into it. Yes. Always that- lean into it. Unless you're using a racial slur, <laughs> exactly. don't lean into it. So I thought he's Kramer. His, his default for comedy is like full tilt lean into it more yeah and eventually it will work and i think that's what his instincts told him to do and i think he thought like a lot of comedians will do i'll get half of the room to come with me on this Mm. and he just made the wrong call um so i well and and it could be not arguing for michael richards yeah i'm saying like it could be that he's so not racist yeah that he he considered it so absurd right to use that yeah. language yeah that he thought oh they'll they'll understand i'm being absurd right you know yeah 
I don't think that's what was happening in the video. But mm, no, <laughs> but I'm just saying, like maybe back in in the in that artist mind, right? He was thinking, yeah, this is it's pretty absurd. Who would use that word? You know what I mean? Like you. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, well, I will cuz I'm the yeah. guy that pushes the envelope. I'm well, the that's that... the that's live by the sword, die by the sword as a comedian. Yeah. They say a lot of risky things. The ones that we see work out, it's a home run. But you can strike out as well. I Yeah, I'm like you like treading lightly like I listen, I'm not condoning the language. I'm just saying I understand what it's like to be in front of people make a misstep and then like a referee in a big game you can't walk it back. You have to mm, stick with the yeah. call that you made in the play. Um, otherwise, what are you? You're not the referee. You're not the yes. stand-up. You're not yeah. the entertainer. Um, so that had my mind going. But then I got to thinking about like what a great friend Jerry Seinfeld oh, is. Yeah. To go on Letterman at the time, which was and nobody else did. Exactly. No, yeah. Else. He was one of the biggest stars on the planet. Yeah. And nobody came out to say like, hey. Let's show some grace. Break, Let's yeah. like not be, mm -hmm. you know, he he's he's you know feels awful. It if you so if you take the time to watch Michael Richards at the Laugh Factory having this meltdown, go ahead and take the time to watch Seinfeld, Seinfeld on, on Letterman. Letterman. Yeah, and it and you'll see a lot of commentary that it's an awkward apology, and it is. And even Michael Richards, when he's piped in on Satellite on Letterman, says, "I don't know that this is the venue mm, for this." Yeah, and I just thought. Man, there is this proverb that says something about don't withhold good from those who deserve it. And I mm. kind of take that to mean like, if you're in a position to help somebody, do everything you can without putting yourself in a mm -hmm. compromised position. Seinfeld had all of this credibility, had all of this cachet as a, as a celebrity, and he did everything he could to help his friend to just say, hey, guys, I'm not condoning what he said. I just want you to give him the benefit of the doubt because I can tell you as somebody that worked closely with him for 10 years, he really isn't that guy. He made a bad call. He's he's willing to apologize and tell you he made a bad yeah. call. And it didn't play off well, but I still... No, and it didn't because the venue was wrong. Richards was right. It was It's a comedy show. Mm -hmm. And I remember the moment that Seinfeld... He said something about it and it was like the audience started to laugh and he actually yeah. shushed the audience uh -huh. and was like... I'm not joking. Right. This, this isn't funny. It, yeah. And then it, and every, everyone was uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah. Like, Cause you're used it, to, he's right. You can't, you can't, uh, people are there for a reason. They're there yeah. to, to laugh and to enjoy themselves. And, you know, you can't blame them for like mm -hmm. thinking it's a joke. It's a comedian, you know, I think Michael Richards you. especially does so much physical comedy that when he's the first time you see him, sitting awkwardly and people kind of start laughing you are expecting you assume it's crime creamer yeah, yeah yeah so that's a long way to get around to when you talk about my process that i thought about that all day saturday and i talked to people that didn't care to hear me talk about it later that day because it just was like going through the process of thinking what it's like to be michael richards going through the process of thinking of being in somebody like seinfeld's position to help him out thinking about being David Letterman to allow that to be on your show and try to navigate that as the host going, this is the biggest story that happened this week. So I'm glad to have the audience, but I'm also here to be funny. Mm -hmm. How do I make that work? I mean, like there's just a lot of things at play there. A lot of dynamics. You're describing what you're describing. There is contemplation. Yeah. You know, I have a friend who's a nun and she is going to a convent in Italy 
I, I heard from a friend of a friend, she's going there. And so I, I haven't spoken to her, so I don't know much about it, but they were telling me like, yeah, and it's a silent convent so that they can't speak at all when they're there. And all they do is contemplate. And I was like, that's pretty, especially because I was thinking about my process and all this. I thought, I bet you think of a lot of things that you never would have thought of before. You know, like mm -hmm. you kind of think like, well, God, that seems like a waste of time. You're just going somewhere to do nothing for like months. I, and I then think you think. it's incredibly useful. Yeah, actually, maybe you go there for for months to do nothing. And in the last five minutes of you being there, <laughs> you think of something that absolutely transforms your entire life. And then you go, well, okay, that's the point of it. You know? Yeah, it, it, uh, that I'd already been thinking about that do not withhold good, you know, like as an idea. But Seinfeld going on Letterman, trying to help his friend, even if you could make an argument that it wasn't wholly successful, a lot of people thought that was a fail. Mm -hmm. I thought, doesn't matter. No, I mean, you're right. like, that's what it looks like to do your best. That was, that was the right thing to do. Yeah. 100%. So yeah, contemplation. That's contemplation. I like that a lot. Maybe like that's your dad hack for the day is that uh, take time to contemplate and be, would you say, be intentional about whatever your process is, you got you to gotta do it. Like there's got to be time to stop and think and reflect. Yeah. Um, my wife's really good about it. She, and you know, Jocko says up before the enemy, but, and I'm, my mom was great about being up long before I was out of bed. And I'm finding it's really useful to be up. Very best is to be up dressed and like have had 30, 45 minutes to contemplate and just sit still when your kids walk out sleepy. Mm -hmm. You know, like you really got the jump on the whole situation and you don't feel behind the eight ball. So it's good. good dad hack, yeah. Good dad hack. Okay. Welcome to the Conspiracy Dad podcast. Uh, we are happy to be here and so excited for all of you to join us on this journey into Laurel Canyon. <laughs> so uh, we are revisiting one of our favorite people, the late, great Mr. Dave McGowan. Yeah. And uh, this, so if you don't recall Dave, uh, definitely without beyond the shadow of a doubt proved that we did not land on the moon. <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty, I'm I feel made, pretty confident. I made a new friend list this week that very sh quickly, like our conversation was something like blah, 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 conspiracy theories. And then the other guy just blurted out. I don't even think we landed on the moon. I was like, no, we did not we land did. on the moon. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, anyone that I talk to about it, when it comes up, I just kind of go, well, do you know who Dave McGowan is? And they, if they say no, I just say, well, you don't know what you're talking about. So <laughs> you should, you should go, you should go read Dave McGowan's work and you'll agree with me that we probably didn't land on the moon. I, I can say <laughs> as a, as a convert specifically on that topic, like as soon as I found out, I've heard you make the comment about Jim Morrison is a CIA. Yeah. You know, like now you understand that's a, that's a real like cliff note version of hearing you say that, but I've not really spent a lot of time thinking about it. And then I, I got into it a little bit and found this book by Dave McGowan and I thought, Oh no, I am like done for. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Here we are three days later. Maybe we are just too stupid 
to uh, see through Dave's logic and facts and reason. But uh, it's a weird thing because most of the people that will call you a kook and a conspiracy theorist, they've never researched it. They don't right. know what you're talking yeah. about. Like they, if I, I feel confident if you re, if you looked if you looked into his research, you would come away with me and say, "You're right. It, it seems like things aren't what they appear to be." He uh, early in the book, you know, you said before about like, well, if he's not an expert, who's an expert? You know, when we talk about other conspiracy mm-hmm. type subject matter, and we talk about specialists and yep. things. Um, somewhere early in the book. Sorry, to say what the book is. Uh, oh, yeah, title. Idea. It's called uh, Weird Signs, Weird Scenes Inside the Canyon. And so it's a book by Dave McGowan. I will put a link in the show notes. I found a free PDF you can oh. download of the whole book. Well, I know that his he died of lung cancer um, probably about 10 years ago, maybe, maybe a little less. And his daughter runs two websites that kind of continue – his work mm-hmm. into the world. The one is a center for informed America, yeah, I believe that's where I got all that. Yeah. And then the other one is just, I think a Facebook page that mm-hmm. is the title of that book, mm-hmm. which is say it again. It was, uh, weird scenes, weird scenes in the canyon, the canyon, inside yeah. the Canyon, uh, on Facebook. And so I think that a lot of his work because he's dead, you know, she's just like, I mean, they, all they care about is they want people to know we didn't land on the moon. Right. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, there you go. Here's his research. Yeah. Uh, all they want to know is that uh, you know Jim Morrison was working for the CIA. Yeah. So um, they put it out there, and I, I don't think there's a lot of. That's kind of what I like about him. There's 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 no financial interest. No. He's dead. Yeah. He's yeah. He's not <laughs> he's like, taking when he yet. was alive. He didn't take a lot of. He didn't make a lot of money off this. And now that he's dead, nobody's making money off this. Mm-hmm. It's his daughter just wanting to keep his memory alive. And that's a pretty fair, I mean, you could say he's wrong or he's right, but you can't call him some kind of grifter, you know? Yeah, right. You know? Yeah. I guess the point I was making is he says something early on about, you know, yeah, you can say this or that's a coincidence, but how many coincidences does it take? Yeah. At some point we can get into one of the quotes where he just lines up one after another, after another. And I mean, it's like, how many how many of these stars do you need to know have parents not just in the military but specifically in the intelligence yes department of the of the military so so just to clarify what the conspiracy is right um dave has a book that goes deep into all of this but it's funny i was telling our friend brad who works in the music industry i was trying to explain this to him a couple years ago and he would have none, none of it. He's like, give <laughs> me a brain. Brad? Yes. Okay. About like, uh, you know, that basically that the CIA really probably orchestrated the hippie movement. Like they, they created the hippie movement and they used it as a controlled opposition during the Vietnam War and, you know, during the anti-war movements. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you have all of these huge stars coming out of this very specific place, Laurel Canyon in California. And a lot, well, Dave gets into it, but you go through star after star after star, and they all come from military intelligence families. And that's his point by saying like, well, yes, you know, it could be a coincidence 
that Jim Morrison's dad started the Vietnam War, and then he went on to be the idol of the anti-war movement, you know? You go, but like, you add that into like 30, 40 other of the biggest stars on the planet, all coming from military intelligence backgrounds, at what point do you think, seems like they're picking kids from military intelligence families, Mm -hmm. and then pushing them into pop pop culture to control a narrative or even to control like like uh, I think one of the examples who's it was it um who's the speaker in the, during the hippie movement in the 60s it was really vulgar I can't remember saying Abby Hoffman Yeah Abby Hoffman yeah. like uh how do you get a bunch of angry organized anti-war people to just basically lose their steam and become useless well, you introduce LSD and mm-hmm. other drugs, dr- vice. You you just you push vice on them, and he hated the hippie movement. I'm so glad you brought that so up. He was so he's one of these guys who's seriously anti-war and blah blah blah. And he hated the hippies because they were dirty, they were drugged out of their minds. They they yeah. made the entire anti-war movement look like a joke. Mm-hmm. And I guess that would be the over. Would you agree? That's kind of the premise of McGowan's theory is that like, yeah, they 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 created it as a controlled opposition that they could then use to discredit the anti-war movement. Yeah. That's a really good summary of kind of the, the pro the thesis of the book and McGowan's position is you had some intelligent organized people saying, guys, I don't know if we should even be over there in mm-hmm. the deep East. Um, let's, let's, let's like, like make some rallies and stuff. And um, it's not unusual in the protest world, not just in the sixties and seventies, but even current day protests for different reasons. You hear a lot of times like the organizers saying, ah, geez, we went out there. Everything was going really well. Felt like we were making some progress. And then of course there was this pocket of people that went nuts and lit a car. January on. Sixers. Yeah. Yeah. That sort of thing. <laughs> and, um, and I've heard it on both sides, you know, an organizer yeah. in an interview will say we were having a good event and it really was going well. And then there was this crazy pocket of people. So yeah, you're right. There's a quote here in the book that says, uh, some on the left even theorized that the hippies were the end result of a plot by the CIA to neutralize the anti-war movement with LSD, turning potential protesters into self-absorbed uh, navel gazers. Uh, an exasperated Abby Hoffman once described the scene as he remembered it thusly. There were all these activists, you know, Berkeley, radicals, white panthers, all trying to stop the war and change things for the better. And then we got flooded with all these like flower children who were into drugs and sex. Where did, where the hell did all the hippies come from? Yeah. Um, Which is exactly what you said. I mean, you had an organized, deliberate acting person trying to make some change. And then these dirty hippies show up just... (laughs) Well, laying around. Saint Saint Augustine, uh, uh, I think, no, is it, maybe it's Aquinas, but a man serves as many masters as he has vices, and that's yeah, the thing that, like, good. you got to remember, if uh, if Augustine knew it, the CIA knows it too. <laughs> it's like, how do you get a, how do you, how do you, you know, get people divided and distracted? Mm-hmm. It's like it's easy. The devil figured this out long ago. It's not even hard. Sex, drugs, rock and roll, whatever. Yeah. And uh, you forget all about those people dying across the ocean. Now, know? I was curious what your thoughts were on this. Like, we could start with Jim Morrison. Mm-hmm. Um, if he, So he's an admiral, Navy admiral's son. Mm-hmm. Um, his dad is over the fleet that was 
that was on duty during the Gulf of Tonkin uh, incident. Incident. Yeah. Uh, McGowan's, you know, he's making the point that that Morrison's dad, you know, put the whole thing together. Wikipedia dismisses that, but so there are people saying, well, he wasn't really that closely related. He was over the whole fleet. Um, mm-hmm. He wasn't actually on the ship that reported attacks from North Vietnam. But regardless, that is... Well, still, he, he was probably still the one who reported to Congress and to right. the president. Yeah, if you're over the whole fleet. We've been fired on yeah. by the North Vietnamese. Yeah. And then they used, they specifically used that. And, and the thing to remember now is back then, we believed it. Sure. But it didn't come out, I believe, until like the late 70s, early 80s that that wasn't true. Mm-hmm. So now it's been admitted that that uh, that didn't happen, that right. the North Vietnamese never fired on us, and we never should have gone to war in mm-hmm. Vietnam. I went back in my Vietnam book by, uh, oh crap, Max Hastings, I think is the name of the author, um, and just listened to the chapter on the Gulf of Tonkin today. And really short cliff note version of that is like, we had been over there with, quote unquote advisors for a little bit of time. And uh, it was one of those where Kennedy's been assassinated. Johnson's in a position where he doesn't want to look weak. And, you know, like in the Westerns where it's like time for the guys to draw on each other and they're getting real jumpy. Mm -hmm. um, We just jumped a little fast and, and pulled the trigger too early. And turns out they, that the North Vietnamese didn't actually pull their gun. And so mm-hmm. we kind of had to go back and go, yeah, yeah, they did. Yeah, they did. Yep. Um, so you're right. It's not just conspiracy theory that the Gulf of Tonkin was a miscommunication. It was, yeah, it came out later that, yeah, we should have not engaged. Um, well, and that, I guess that's why it's important to know that like it, now it is a fact. It's right. not, it's not like yeah. we're, uh, you know, maybe, you know, uh, Admiral uh, Morrison did this, you know, they, we, yeah. him in, you know, whoever else was involved, that was the spark that started the war. Right. And we were in the wrong. We should not have done that. Yeah. So to what degree he was involved, that can be debated. Um, but he was involved. And then his son went on to be Jim Morrison that we know of. Um, so I guess my question is, do you think that Jim Morrison and some of these others that we're going to have, you know, go over, was the idea that, or is the idea that Jim Morrison comes in as like a CIA agent and deliberately makes moves as a rock star? Or do you think that like, when I think about my son in a few years, when he's the age that Jim Morrison would have been like late teens, early twenties, I tell my son, Jim, Hey, um, I got a fun job for you, son. I'm going to move you to Southern California. And I want you to Make some friends. Actually, some of my work buddies have some other friends that want to start a band. Why don't you start a band with them? You guys do whatever you want. I mean, how much direction do you think these parents? I I think or? it was. I think a lot. Okay. I think that that's specific specifically with Morrison. I think he, if you study his childhood, mm-hmm. and I mean, how many people? I'm not saying it's out of the out of the realm of possibility, but how many people? are military based like spent his whole life on military bases. Mm-hmm. So his educational background is full steam ahead military. He li- should have followed in his dad's footsteps to be an admiral or some high-ranking military officer. Mm-hmm. And then uh just almost immediately 
turns and goes and becomes a huge rock star yeah. who isn't actually a musician, doesn't, <laughs> doesn't actually play music yeah. and actually isn't even that into music, but finds himself the, you know, leader of the biggest band in the world. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I think that, and, and, in, and also like, if you look at his life, he's, he clearly goes through phases where it's almost like he's reinventing himself several times. That looks like an actor to me. That looks like somebody who's been trained mm -hmm. to like, okay, son, you know, maybe, maybe he went to Langley and everything. And they said, well, we need, uh, somebody to be a rock star. Cause rock and roll is the, you know, the latest, you know, trend that's going to connect with the youth culture of America. And he's like, well, I'm a decent singer. Okay. Well, grow your hair out go out to Laurel Canyon, mm -hmm. talk to Frank Zappa and we'll get you hooked up to become the next big rock star. And, yeah. and all the while, yeah, I think, I, th I think him, if, if anybody on that list was taking marching orders from someone, it looks like him because he was just not, his whole trajectory to fame seems so inorganic. It yeah. Just, it just seems like they just like dropped him there. The idea that when I found out that he didn't actually play music, I was like, okay. Well, I hadn't heard that, but I like, mean, he, I mean, he, I I've never seen him with a guitar in his hand. No, I think yeah. I think he could sing, and I yeah. think I think he was a great leader, like a front man for a yeah. band. But um, how many guys do you know that are man. professional musicians who actually don't play any instrument? Right, and you know, if you the same qualities that make up like a good team captain would make a good front man. Mm -hmm. Do you know how to be in front of a group of people? and like get a room fired up. That's your job. There are other people that do it. Kanye West. I don't think he plays any instruments. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, there's a lot of rappers that yeah. don't obviously don't play any instruments. I'm just thinking of like, but you're the, right. The leadership. Like leadership. So like it's, it's it, the, what qualifies you for the job. Isn't necessarily, I can play five instruments yeah. and I'm, you know, versed in whatever mm -hmm. background of music. Yeah. Um, glad you brought up Zappa. Cause yeah, he's another one with, these George weird... Strait. I don't think he plays music. I know, there's there's probably a couple country singers that don't play any instruments. George Strait, the one. Yeah, no, I was thinking of uh, Vince McGill's the Vince Gill's the good guitar. Player. Vince Gill's the amazing He's guitar. The that dude plays plays for the Eagles, who also came from Little <laughs> Canyon. <laughs> Vince Gill, man, is he on that list too? He's not, but he's, it, he, he's, he's he's an Okie boy, isn't he? Well, that's a funny thing because like JJ Kale, yeah, uh, is not on the Laurel Canyon list, but N neither is Leon Russell. Correct, but so we've got some of you know, <coughs> we've got some Tulsans that that were in and around all this. So it, if we had access to like a Leon Russell or a JJ Kale, it'd be pretty fun to ask them. Like, do you think those guys were CIA guys or yeah. Because did was it odd to you that they seemed to just fly up the charts and you didn't? Yeah, because like, I just read make JJ a lot of Kale's biography today, and it talks a little bit about he's originally from Oklahoma City. Grew up in Tulsa. Him and Eric Clapton were buddies. And I thought, oh, Eric Clapton was hanging out with Frank Zappa and all these guys. J.J. Kale spent like a year out there and was right back in Tulsa playing bars. You know, whereas, mm. yeah, whereas the Eagles just skyrocket, right? Well, and I think that's the, like, who knows how the mechanism works or how this all happened. But I think the idea is that a lot of these people might also be useful idiots. So when you ask right. like who is taking orders from someone, um, I would say probably most of these people, most of them not, you right. know what I mean? Like 
um, is probably more like coming from a label. Mm -hmm. And so your label or your manager might tell you, Hey, we kind of want to push this idea or this, you know what I mean? Like, but you're not sitting down with the CIA to take a call and say, (laughs) we need you to write a song about X, Y, and Z. And you know, you need to change your hairstyle. I think it was more, um, like project mockingbird propping up media outlets, propping up Mm -hmm. record labels and and things like that, kind of knowing, well, they're going to push, push the ideas that we want them to push, Mm -hmm. which are anti-war hippie stuff. You brought up uh, Zappa and yeah, he's kind of known as the kind of the godfather of this whole hippie movement. I didn't know this before reading this book, but Laurel Canyon there near Hollywood was not really, it wasn't a music scene. So it's not mm-hmm. like present day where you go, well, I really go to think Nashville, I'm going to go to Austin. Go to I'm going to go to Knoxville. Village, go yeah, to, yeah. yeah. It's not like, well, that's where it's all happening. I'm going to go and see if I can make something mm-hmm. happen there. The way that this works out is like, you've got like, yeah, Jim Morrison, Frank Zappa, uh, Crosby, Stills and Nash, Neil Young, uh, John Denver. They all show up at Laurel Canyon inside of like 12 months of each other. Wow. And again, yeah, that's great. But there was like, even like there's a quote from Neil Young, like, why did you go there? And a lot of these guys that I just listed, they're kind of like, well, it just seemed like a play. I don't know. We were just drawn there, man. And, um, that's weird. You, you guys all decided in the same 12 months that you should just go to this place and, then you guys all just launched these amazing careers out of this one town that had nothing to do with music. There's no industry. There's no clubs. There. Mm-hmm. There's no studios. To there record. are now, there but are yeah, now, but when they, when they went out there, yeah. the clubs came because right. of what happened there, not yeah. because it existed. And yeah. so, and that could get, well, that's another important part of the part of the book is I forget the guy named Vito something like the, the, mm-hmm. where exactly the hippie movement originated from had to do with the birds. Right. right. And, and then a specific group of like, it was like a fashion, like a, like a club, like it was a group of people. It was girls dancing and people dressing and they could trace it back to this one shop where it's like the style, the, the flowers, the, the, a lot of what went on to be, be become like mainstream culture that's where it started and it had to do with and and it looks really orchestrated because even the birds they were not like they weren't good musicians they weren't yeah. like uh, people weren't going to their shows to see the band they didn't know who the band was they didn't care yeah, who the band right. was it was a freak show mm-hmm. of almost like a circus of all these other people dressing strange and dancing yep. strange and acting strange. And they were, they were being like really used to draw people in and create a movement. Mm-hmm. And now maybe that happened in a vacuum and it just, I don't know, just happened, but that's what his idea is like, it seems really orchestrated because the the clubs and then how the careers kind of built off that, it just seems like it, it wasn't, um, it wasn't organic. Right, yeah. This uh, this chapter is the Vito and his freakers. That's kind of the mm-hmm. name right. they're going yeah. for at the beginning. And you're right. The idea in that part of the book is that yeah, the 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 bands live were not all that great, and that's like by the admission of the musicians in the mm-hmm. band. Um, and this is where like 
for those of you that are music nerds, this is where like the the famous Wrecking Crew comes into play. Mm-hmm. Um, Carol Kay and all these other musicians that they played on all of these albums, and so the recordings are great. Um, but it's all the that's same. not that's not this, the band though. Yeah. yeah. So and then you know sound systems being what they are in the '60s, and if if it's just about it being a party scene, you're not really noticing if the live sound is that great because like, just to your point, it's you're really going to be seen at the whiskey, a go, go. And you're also going to watch these Vito and his freakers dance around. And really the clubs are counting on Vito to bring these girls to get the party. going. It's no different from today. It's exactly, if the band yeah. brings hot girls. You hire the band. Yes. Yeah. Well, and, and also, yes, people didn't care so much that the band kind of sucked because there's hot, girls dancing around and getting the party going. So um, that's what I mean by like, it looked orchestrated. Like, you know, we got to, you know, we need, we need to create this, you know, get these, these, this music out there, but you know, we don't exactly have the greatest musicians. Well, it doesn't really matter, you know, right. Yeah. Throw these crazy hippies in there, but Mm -hmm. that, that uh, quickly turned into uh, attracting. Well, I mean, I think there were people involved with it. One of the key figures is Charles Manson. Mm-hmm. gets deeply yeah. involved in this and um there's a lot of things that indicate that he he might have been um a CIA asset that MK Ultra that he was some sort of I mean his life you could go into it if you want to it's very dark I don't know if I even want to talk about <laughs> it but like there's been a lot of books written on on his life and what it was like but it doesn't seem um could he have been MK Ultra? Absolutely. And maybe MK Ultra wasn't supposed to go crazy and murder a bunch of people. Right. You know yeah. what I mean? But we gotta remember that the CIA uh didn't it's not like they tested LSD on rats right. before they <laughs> before they released it to the public. They this was all covert operations, and you know, they didn't exactly I don't know if people exactly knew what was going to happen, you know? Sure. And it might be that, you know, Charles Manson was positioned being friends with Neil Young and all these people. He was rubbing shoulders with all these people and he was supposed to be a huge rock star. Like he he was going to be- He auditioned for, I I can't remember if it was the birds, but I mean- Yeah, it was the birds. So yeah, this line in the book here is, uh, Charlie and his family weren't just a peripheral flock of crazed killers among the Laurel Canyon sovereigns. To the contrary, the family mingled with many of the Canyon's rock stars. So this section of the book is going on, and it goes into more detail about like, no, we're not kidding. We're talking about like the Beach Boys were hanging out with Charles Manson yeah. and the family. Like, and yeah, their their little com- commune wasn't far from Laurel Canyon. I mean, it was he was in the front yard playing music with the guys from the Monkees, you know. So, and uh, there's some other serial killer who's out of prison now who d- plays music. It's not Phil Spector, is it? No, gosh, I'll think of it in a second. No, it's not a serial killer. It's a guy who shot Reagan. Hmm. Is that who it is? I think I have to look that up. But his music is terrible. <laughs> but you know, I mean, it's it's with Charles Manson specifically. I mean, his music is pretty people, bad too. People, yeah, people it's make jokes good. about his music, but you go well. Yeah, and I'm not taking up for Charles Manson and Michael Richards in the same episode. I'm just saying. <laughs> Some of these other bands, they had producers, they had songwriters. So, you know, 
Well, go uh, through the list of like, okay, that'd be the next cool thing. Like go through, this is McGowan's point about how many coincidences do you have before you start yeah, to think right. there's something funny going on. If you just thought about yourself, uh, how many friends, especially artist friends, do you have who come from intelligence families? I have one. I have one friend <laughs> who is an artist whose family is CIA. That's it. Maybe you have more. I don't know. Yes. Um, you do? Right. No, no, I'm sorry. I was, I, I misunderstood. I'm with you. Yeah. I don't know, know anyone who's military intelligence specifically. Oh, no, I do know one. I don't know. They're not CIA that I know of, but I can only think of one person who I don't even know. It's like one degree of separation okay. that works in military intelligence. So okay. it's pretty uncommon, at least in our world. Yeah. <laughs> and, Many of these people that McGowan lists off that all end up in Laurel Canyon in like 1964 specifically are all from the East Coast, like right around Norfolk, Virginia, (laughs) D.C. They all move from (laughs) D.C. to Laurel Canyon. Yes. And you're right. They all meet up and become buddies. And it doesn't seem like any of them go, that is the weirdest thing. We all grew up at the same We went to the same military school. And we all just coincidentally ended up in the same town. damned. Right next to this lookout mountain base. It's a it's a co- covert military base right in the middle of Laurel Canyon where yeah. we where we all want to. We just move came out here to get away, go get away from it all. Um, yeah, I mean, like Zappa, for instance, his dad was a chemical warfare uh, engineer, and then Zappa's wife was in kindergarten with Jim Morrison. Yeah, um, on the same military base. Squeaky yeah. from. Charles Manson's family was in high school with, oh, I'm jumping ahead. I want to get into Phil Hartman and actors. Oh, that's, like, I don't yeah, think that's we have another, time for No, we don't that. have time for that. But I'm just saying the amount of connections of people with, to your point, I know of one person I can think of that I don't even know personally that's in military intelligence. Mm-hmm. You just mentioned one person that you know. I can barely name 10 people I know that are in the military let alone a specific faction of it, right? And now here you go. Here are these people that are unique in the fact that they all moved to Laurel Canyon just in the last 12 months. They're all exceptionally talented and their careers all take off at the same time. And none of them seem to like think it's a strange coincidence that they all came from the same other side of the country and that their parents all come from like, they're all naval officers, intelligence uh, operatives. And uh, and then, yeah, like, not just, it'd be different if you go, well, yeah, my dad was in the army too. Cause this is all a generation that. After was, World War II. Exactly. Yeah, so like baby that. boomers. That's what I started thinking at the beginning of the book. Like, well, how uncommon or how common was it for everybody to have military parents? Probably very common, but that would be like more like my buddy's dad. He was more like a logistics guy. Yeah. You know, he delivered. Or even he was, he was just or, in the war, but he's yeah. not like a career. Exactly. Military, also career military intelligence. Yeah. Not, not just Uncle Frank mm-hmm. served in, in the war, you know? Yeah. I mean, you got guys like uh, David Crosby. McGowan goes into some detail about like the bloodline of David Crosby mm. that goes back to like the founders of the country. So it's not even just military high-ranking officials but also like founding father type bloodlines mm-hmm. that it goes back to for some of these people so let's do a list okay let's, okay so obviously jim morrison 
Dave Crosby, deep uh, military intelligence mm-hmm. family. Wasn't Janis Joplin also military intelligence? Mm, her dad was a CEO for like Citgo. Oh. Not CEO, but he was like a higher up. Uh, but Jimi Hendrix was military. He was Yeah, in let's talk Jimi Hendrix yeah. for a second because when when you mentioned that I knew he was had spent some time in the military, but I just He's in and he is not the real interesting part of it. It's his manager. Well, so like, so like he, yeah, he was in the military, but his manager was a really shady guy who bragged about being in the CIA, which is weird that you'd say you're, yes. man- you're managing a rock star and you're an intelligence officer for the CIA. I mean, he admitted it. Right. Um, yeah, let's see. I'm looking for. And I think that's where a lot of this happens. It's again, I think it'd be weird if the, these people are sitting down with an intelligence person to like tell them what to say and do. I think it happens with managers and agents and record labels. And it, it's, it's, a, it's an influence from the top mm-hmm. down that's it's more subtle than that. Yeah. Like if your manager, if, if Jim, Jimi Hendrix's manager was actually working for the CIA for whatever reason, you're never going to notice the. No one knows. Right. Tell sure. me your favorite rock star. And I could ask you who's, <laughs> who's their, their manager, manager and where are they from? What do they do? You'll have no idea. I just was thinking like, uh, I, I play in a band that has a manager and I think we just changed managers and I don't know who that is. Like, but how much of the work that you end up doing <laughs> yeah, is the in, manager and has the manager calls all the shots. Yeah. You're just you're just uh, you're just showing up and doing the gig. You don't know what's going on. He could have a total agenda, and you wouldn't. Uh, That's Henry why would bands no idea. want to have a manager. Yes, so they don't have to do things like that, <laughs> like make decisions. Um, I'm looking for his for Hendrix's manager, but I came across just Hendrix's time in the military in the meantime. Um, and it's one thing is that uh, he reportedly had gone into the military as more like a he had gotten in trouble with the law. So they mm. said, well, you got to, you can go to jail or you can go to the military. But then he became like an elite air force type. I mean, he was like a paratrooper mm-hmm. or something. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then he broke his foot and got discharged. And the point McGowan makes in the book is if he had been enrolled in the enlisted in the military for some kind of illegal punishment, it's pretty wild that they would put him in like an elite force, some kind of special operations. And if he did injure his foot, but he was still, like serving time. Um, it seems like they would put him in like an admin role. Or... Yeah, it sounds like a, be- a backstory they gave him to right. make him yeah. seem cool. Like a yeah, rebel. Yeah. Exactly. He was in the military, but he wasn't, he wasn't down with that. Yeah, he you wasn't, know? Exactly. Yeah. He's only doing it because they had to. Let's see if I can find his manager, but um, he's not the only, you're right. There's, I think it was either maybe the birds manager or if it was, uh, yeah, that was like, retired like a retired marine that had spent time in cuba when there was a revolution in cuba mm-hmm. like we had put a coup on in cuba as the u.s and this guy just happened to be there as a he just wanted to be there to see it happen for humanitarian reasons or whatever um <laughs> he's yeah. vacationing yeah, yeah yeah i mean like again hopefully this uh hopefully that this conversation is not coming off too frenetic um but it's just because the amount of examples that McGowan cites are just one after another. Yeah. I, I mean, I, if you get his book, I mean, there's probably 30 plus 
people mm -hmm. that are huge, huge rock stars of the time that uh, all come from milita military families and military intelligent backgrounds. It's not just that that's like really unusual, um, but to make a point of like, what, how, how many coincidences does it take? Mm -hmm. um, the amount of deaths by like oh yeah yeah, yeah. On well, the shower on a bullet <laughs> jimmy hendrix and i mean lots of them dying in the amount of suicides connected right. to yeah. it both these stars and their families mm -hmm. so yeah right a lot of slipping on the sh in the shower and landing on the bullet uh <laughs> the the statistic in america is like if you're a white person in america your chances of being murdered or something like one in I think it was one in 450,000. I mean, it's pretty slim. Um, but if you were living in Laurel Canyon <laughs> between 1964 to 1968, it was scales like, up a bit. It's like one in four. I mean, Oh God. Yeah. I mean, people were just dying like crazy. And, and you can say, the argument against that, I think could be like, well, yeah, they were also doing a lot of drugs. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it was a wild and there was like, for some weird reason, the other thing that was weird was none of these people were getting drafted. Right. None of these yeah. people were getting yeah. arrested for, mm -hmm. I mean, whether you agree or disagree, the drug charges, the drug, there were strict dr drug laws at the time. And no, they were all openly using drugs. Nobody's mm -hmm. getting arrested for yeah. it. And also there's the draft on and no one's getting drafted. And you would think if you're the establishment and there's all these anti-war movement people coming up who are a thorn in your side you could very easily just draft them all to the front lines. Totally. Like you could, yeah. if you, like if Elvis you, went to, yeah. Work. Like if you were the CIA That's and you had, and you wanted to get rid of uh, Jimi Hendrix or, a, um, you know, whoever, pick your, pick your, whoever it might be. It's not like it would be hard to do. Yeah. You could Especially, get them on drug charges. You could walk in any minute. You could walk into their house and you could arrest them. If we could pull this Gulf of Tonkin stunt and just make the war happen, it seems pretty plausible that, Yeah. Hey, this uh, David Crosby's getting a little mouthy. Why don't we just go ahead and put him in the service? And if he doesn't want to go, we'll just put him in jail, right? Um, yeah, if you get the book or you listen to it, chapter three opens with just a laundry list of all of these people that are like kind of what we've been listing off, but I mean, goes into detail for everybody of, how they got there and they all died. And like you said, fall and slip on a bullet. Now, yes, there were a lot of drugs involved, but I mean, one of the, one of the deaths that he, the first one that came to mind when you go, well, there are a lot of drugs and substance abuse. Keith Moon's one that I kind of just readily accepted as like, we well, just drank himself to death. I mean, he was like widely known that he was a big partier. Um, but his was one where the medication he was on was, was for alcohol withdrawal, but, you know, like, no, there was somebody else that had a, oh, it was, uh, had a morphine overdose, but they were in a, they were in a home hmm. like where they would not have been had, they would have not have had access to morphine. It would have been like monitored to the point where they couldn't have overdosed on morphine. But, um, again, Keith Moon was one that I forget the specifics of, but it was, it wasn't an alcohol overdose. Like they reported, it was actually like, you know, God, man, I'm sorry. I'm forgetting it, but no, I don't. Uh, I don't know. But my point is, some of these, like another one in here, was a guy that committed suicide, quote unquote. But the weird thing was, after he had shot himself, he beat himself to death and poured gasoline on himself. 
<laughs> and he had some matches sitting next to him, almost like as if somebody else might have beat him up and then, you know, lit him on fire on was going to light him on fire, but they got ran off. Um, there are a lot of like suspicious suicide, quote unquote suicides, or like, um, like you said, family members where, um, I forget who it was now, but there was a case where one of the celebrities families, it was a mother and the son, both a lot of, a lot of Vince Foster's out there. They both committed of... suicide on the same day in the same house by chance. Like but that was uh, another weird point too, was, uh, the day that Jim Morrison died is the same day that they decommissioned yes. his dad's yeah. uh, ship. I just read about from, that. Yeah. It started the incident and it was like, I mean, it could be a coincidence, but it's also like, that's weird that that would happen on the same A lot day. of these deaths happen on October 12th, which is, uh, I think is Aleister Crowley's birthday. It goes back to Satan. Yeah. <laughs> so just to pivot a little bit, the, the reason we thought this would be interesting to do is because this Sunday is right. the Super yeah. Bowl. Uh -huh. And we, we couldn't help but notice that it looks like, at least from a, a capitalist perspective, that a certain a football franchise has really <laughs> used the celebrity cachet of Taylor Swift yeah. to make a lot more money, uh -huh. which nothing wrong with that. You know, I think you were saying it was like $350 million yeah, of additional like yeah. revenue has, has gone into the chiefs program because of Taylor Swift just going to games. Either the Chiefs specifically or just the NFL in general is saying oh, NFL. indirectly. We've so then the NFL would be in a position where they're like, we kind of really want the Chiefs to play. Why? Because she's going to the uh -huh. game and we're making, or all making a lot more money. Yeah. And, uh, that's a very clear way. Like you don't have to be smart to figure that equation out and just go, okay. If uh, it reminds me of when uh, is Lil Wayne, I think it was Lil Wayne in Oklahoma City at some point. It was about 10 years ago. He was going to a Thunder game. Uh -huh. And I don't know if you remember the story, but mm -mm. he went to go and he didn't have a ticket. Like he's just used to just letting him in. And the security guard wouldn't let him in and said, you don't have a ticket. You can't come in. And he was like, uh, I, I I bring money to the, to the stadium. Like people come here because I'm here. And I could just picture some like – Really butch red. Hey, I don't know who you think like, you are, Chief. I don't know who you think you are, a little without Wayne a, or a little John or whoever you are. <laughs> without a ticket. You ain't got a ticket. You ain't coming through That's this right. line. Yeah. And he he got all upset and was like, Kevin Durant invited me personally, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, yeah, not in Oklahoma. So what's that Wayne's world where he yeah. says a lot of people's girlfriends are in there? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because on the surface, the first time I heard something about, well, actually the NFL theory, like you said, that one made a lot of sense to me. Yeah. Like I was kind of like, oh, of course they want Taylor Swift to. But then not long after that, I heard like rumblings. The simulation was serving up yeah. things for me to hear <laughs> where it was. Well, the, con you know, the conservatives are really concerned that the Democrats are going to get her, you know, endorsement. And that's going to be really good for Biden's campaign. And, and then, well, but if they can maybe get her to endorse the side on the right, or, and I, it, it does make a difference. Like sure, I had a yeah. conversation the other day with someone who works with a marketing agency that represents Phil Robertson with the Duck Dynasty. Okay, and they she was telling me about the influence that he had on Trump's election, and mm -hmm. it's huge. Yeah. Like uh, you would like they she they do the data, so they run the numbers, and she's like, oh, absolutely he helped him become president and mm. like not, not in a small way. Like you would think he's, you know, but him, I think he showed up at some rallies and 
you know, just giving that endorsement, you're talking about hundreds of millions of votes of people that honestly, they're pretty influenced by him. You think about when Rogan has somebody on his podcast and I, like a Lazar, for instance, I think is one that a lot of people would have been like, oh, what a kook. And then people, after he's on Rogan, people go, well, I mean, Rogan talked to him. And then all of a sudden, like. He also talks to Eddie Bravo, but. Well, <laughs> <laughs> that's a really good point. Yeah. And I like Eddie. Eddie, if you ever happen to hear this, I love Eddie Bravo, but you think the earth is flat. So I don't. <laughs> yeah. Before I. Uh, oh, I think that was. Yeah. When we were talking about topics, I was. I noticed we'd threatened to do flat earth a couple of times, but then this Taylor Swift thing really got. Oh, me. we should do that next. Okay. Yeah. yeah I'd, I'd like to. Uh, I think this is, yeah, I think this is a good stopping point as far as like, if you have, if this has not piqued your interest. Before we stop there, the the point I was going to make is that it looks like what was happening in Laurel Canyon, the reason was because that was the pop, like music and as a medium, like that's where it was at. Like Mm -hmm. that's what was relevant to pop culture and to people. And so why would the CIA or any agency you know, focus in on that or try to use that to their advantage was because it was relevant. And that, that, I I believe that's changed now. I think there's probably is still some of that going on, but um, obviously with the advent of the internet and where we are today, Mm -hmm. you, you conspiracy dads out there, you should think about, well, where, like, why would they be YouTube influencers today? Definitely. That's, I mean, internet is a military operation. So there, there's a lot of influence going on. I think that it also shifted to corporations. I think that a lot of these companies like oh, Elon man. Musk, yeah. like, you know, uh, M- Mark Zuckerberg, they're absolutely, it, even if they're unaware of it, mm-hmm. like you can't look at someone like Musk and say, well, oh, he just, he just built his empire on his own. No, the people that make a lot of money and a, a really successful they're almost always deeply connected to government contracts, government work. I mean, Musk is who he is because the federal government backed his companies in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. in, in more than one way, both through NASA and through Tesla. And I'm not saying that's a criticism. I'm just saying that, like, you don't think that comes with some sort of caveat, like, <laughs> like, hey, yeah. we're gonna give you, we're we're gonna prop you up, but also we might need to talk from time to time. Mm-hmm. I think it'd be foolish to think that they don't. I mean, Zuckerberg, that guy just looks like a, like a CIA, like a spook. Like he, he just, he doesn't look organic. He doesn't look organic. He doesn't look like, I mean, I think if, if you think about how the amount of money and the way that just skyrocket, I just think if, if you were working a job where the federal government could influence you know, whatever, in, in some small way, you would see right away how it makes a huge difference. You sure. know, yeah. say you get like, you know, half your contracts are federal or something like that. You go, wow, it's a lot of money. It doesn't take much. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it. you see it on a much smaller scale, just with small businesses, whoever mm-hmm. the big client is, you know, like for instance, when I worked in radio, whether it was the big car dealer or the big bar owner, that mm-hmm. was your biggest client. Yeah. He, he had influence in the building. Um, so you go, well, let's scale that up like 13,000 X yeah, <laughs> and say it's the federal government. And you're, like you said, your business is largely sustained by that. You don't think that you're not going to have a politician come to you and go, Hey, you remember last year when we bailed you out again, going to need to turn in a favor mm-hmm. from you. Yeah. yeah. 
just makes sense. Well, yeah. anyway, that's a good stopping point for this one. Maybe we'll pick it up at the next one with, um, we'll do, we might do a two part on this because you want to do yeah. Hollywood. Uh, because, yeah, I, there's more Hollywood that we, I had no idea the extent to which, yeah, I mean, the Young Turks early in Hollywood. And then, yeah, you get into a little bit later. Some of the, again, like Phil Hartman was one that I had no idea was on the radar for any of this. And mm-hmm. there's a story about him in there. So, well, we'll pick it up with uh, Hollywood on the next one. And then, then we'll try to get into flat earth, but thank you for listening to the conspiracy dad podcast. We uh, appreciate everybody and we'll see you next time.